Thank you, Catherine. Could we have the first slide up, please, Andy? Thank you. In uh, 2013, the programme Songs of Praise conducted a survey to find the most popular hymns. And from the list of 100, here are the first six, the most popular six. As we consider, again, uh, the accounts in 1 Kings, we have found again and again that the key issue is the idolatry of God's people. Uh, But today I want to shift the focus from the idolatry that they indulged in to think about the idolatries that we may indulge in. And so the one in that list that interests us today is this one, the fourth one. Dear Lord and Father of Mankind. Uh, The title is uh, fairly dodgy um, because, of course, he can only be the father of those within created humankind whom he's called to be his children. Uh, If that title is right, then St. Paul in Romans 8 is wrong. And my money is on St. Paul. Uh, But a little look at the background to this hymn may help us understand it and be inclined to be forgiving. I'm going to assume that you know it, since it is the fourth most popular hymn. It was sung on radio this morning. The American poet John Greenleaf Whittier wrote the words in 1872, when he was already 65. He was a Quaker. He'd been very active in the whole uh, movement for the abolition of slavery. And that issue was, of course, at the heart of the uh, American Civil War, which he had lived through where both sides claimed that God was on their side. Drop thy still dews of quietness till all our strivings cease. Well, Whittier had lived through the strivings of mankind, and he knew how easily we claim God to be on this side or the other. It's not surprising that as a Quaker, he longed for God so to order human lives that they confess the beauty of thy peace. But it was in the context of another civil war, the English one, that Quakerism arose. And we in Norwich owe a great deal to the Quakers. The Fries and the Gurneys are from this area. Uh, Go to Opie Street, and you'll see uh, on one of the buildings there the statue of Amelia Opie. Uh, All of them devoted to uh, good works, Uh, and to social justice, pursuing it within the legitimate trades of their time. And Quakerism itself arises just after two mighty factions have been at war in England in a different civil war. The Roundheads, the Puritans, that is, and the more Catholic Royalists. And they're contending over a basic question. How does God give authority to mankind. And they too must have longed for the days that Whittier prayed for after that later civil war. Breathe through the heats of our desire, thy coolness and thy balm. Let sense be dumb, let flesh retire. Speak through the earthquake, wind and fire, O still small voice of calm. And you might with those lines, have spotted the connection to our reading. 
even if you originally wondered where on earth is this going. Because the gentle whisper that you see in, uh, uh, in the verses on page 361. Verse uh, 12. The gentle whisper that we have in our translations was in older translations a still, small voice. There have been times in human history when the power of God has been claimed by one side or another. And often enough, that's been the power of war. We remember today the start of World War I. And Ahab claimed that same power in ancient Israel. Ahab is a toad among kings. Uh, Everything that they said in that little clip of video is entirely true. At least that's true of his godliness. But in terms of politics, he is a towering genius. He has forged an alliance with the northern coastal peoples by marrying one of their princesses, Jezebel. And those peoples will become the buffers between his kingdom of northern Israel and the greater regional power, which is Aram, or as we would now call it, Syria. Uh, Remember always that Damascus, which is where Syria was based then and now, is incredibly close uh, to Israel. If you were to travel from Samaria, which was the headquarters of Ahab, to Galilee, you only have to go as far on again, and you get to Damascus. The only problem is that Jezebel has brought with her the worship of the Baals and Ashtoreth, the fertility gods of the coastal peoples. If you were here last week, you'll have heard Elizabeth tell the story of the contest on Mount Carmel between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. They want their God to answer them by fire, and they indulge in all kinds of powerful fuss. They shout, they dance, they cut themselves, they grow frantic, we are told. Then Elijah comes and prays, O God, Yahweh, let them know that there is today a God in Israel and fire falls to consume the sacrifice and it is a great victory for Yahweh. So Ahab and company are furious, but Jezebel is the one that matters. Ahab's queen, she threatens to kill Elijah and he runs to Beersheba. Now, as ever, geography matters. Uh, Israel is the northern kingdom. Uh, These days, it would be just sort of a bit south and a bit west of Galilee. It isn't the whole thing, remember. Israel is the north, Judah is the south. So, uh, uh, Elijah is running uh, through his own country of Samaria, all the way through Judah, to the very southern tip of Judah, to Beersheba. He says... I have had enough, Lord. There in verse 4. God sustains him with food and drink, and he carries on even further south for 40 days and 40 nights. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. This is important, 40 days, 40 nights. Where? To the mountain of Horeb in Sinai. What happened there? God, many 
uh, hundreds of years before had met with Moses. And in response there to God's question to him, why are you here? Elijah's exhaustion is obvious. Everyone's dead and they're now after me. Well, God says, I'm going to pass by. And there is wind, there's earthquake, there's fire. But then comes a gentle whisper, the still small voice of older translations, so that, I suppose, by the quietness, Elijah is invited out to the mouth of the cave that he's been hiding in. The question is repeated, the answer is the same. And then Elijah is told of a new task. He's going to have to go all the way back. Further, in fact, he's not just going to have to go back to northern Israel, he's going to have to go back all the way to Syria itself. He's going to anoint those to come as kings of Syria and of Israel and to anoint Elisha as his successor. And we learn so much, not just from what John Greenleaf Whittier did with that story, but from the popularity, continuing popularity, of what he did with that story. For him, the true voice of God was in the still, small voice of calm and not in the earthquake, wind, and fire. It's 1872. The dark, satanic mills of the Industrial Revolution, both sides of the Atlantic, are underway. And it was perfect timing for a religion that escaped The times were ready for a God of the quiet interior of the human spirit. The world was full of noise and fury, but God was to be found in feelings, in a quiet sense of religious peace. And we still have that legacy with us at number four in the hymn charts. Perhaps because the earthquake, wind, and fire were all too obvious in the wars of the 20th century, at least as much as in the furnaces and the forges of the 19th. So, let us observe that it is an idolatry and that it is false to Scripture and false to this text because, first, it ignores where all this happens. This is Sinai. Does the still, small voice of God at Sinai, through which God speaks here, invalidate the wind, earthquake, and fire through which God spoke originally at Horeb to Moses. It cannot invalidate it. Whatever we go on to say, we have to say that there can be no sense of earthquakes bad, whispers good. Both forms of speaking are forms that God has used. Secondly, It ignores what has just happened. Yes, we're told here in verse 11 that God was not in the wind, not in the earthquake, not in the fire, but by golly, he was in the fire a few uh, verses before. That was exactly the point of the contest on Mount Carmel. He is the God who answers by fire when Baal does not. Thirdly, this is a God who is about to move to appoint rulers who will slay people. Even the prophet is going to be responsible for deaths. Look at verse 17. This is not the God of a still, small voice whose calm leads us all to gentle truth. 
So if it's not about, let's put this world of noise and fury behind us and all listen to our internal voice, if it's not about that kind of idolatry of an escapist, quietest approach to God, what is this chapter about? And I want to suggest an answer. Elijah has just come from winning a tremendous religious victory. But his prayer, remember, was that all should know that today you are a God in Israel. It is a religious victory, and Jezebel's action shows that it still hasn't rescued the people. Politically, things are still dreadful. And he analyzes it for us. The people have rejected your covenant. The prophets have been killed. And Jezebel is after even me. The lifestyle, the social life that was supposed to characterize the people, the political life that was to characterize them, it's been abandoned. The fire has won the great religious victory. But now God wants to do something else. So he brings out wind, he brings out earthquake, he brings out fire, precisely to leave them behind. No, not that one. No, not that one. Not that one either. But the still, small voice, the gentle whisper, tells Elijah that God remains quietly, even hiddenly, in charge of the politics as well. He is, as we say, sovereign, in charge. But that sovereignty is going to be a matter of quiet, persistent faith. Could we have the other slide, please, Andy? The story that we have today, we we can't date it precisely, but we do know that Ben-Hadad is on the throne in, in Syria. So it's sometime around here, so 870s. There's the kings of Syria, Ben-Hadad, Hadadezer, and Hazael of Israel, Ahab, Ahaziah, he only lasted two years, Joram and Jehu, and then uh, the two uh, active prophets. So look at the timing. Those thicker lines there mean that there is a break in the dynasty, in the house. Both Hazael and Jehu are warrior commander generals who uh, basically produce coups. They, uh, They overthrow the previous dynasty, by violence. And God is saying to Elijah, I, um, I'd like you, please, um, to go a very long way, even though you're exhausted, and anoint Hazael, who's going to overthrow the uh, Syrians uh, by violence, and uh, Jehu, uh, who's going to overthrow the northern kingdom by violence. So off you go. Um, but the people, this is then, have still got to live through a lot of Ahab bit of Ahaziah, and all of Joram, who are just as bad as Ahab was. The people in Syria have got to live through a bit more of Ben-Hadad, Hadadezer, who was pretty awful, before they get to Hazael. It's going to be a long time coming. That's my point. So earthquake and wind and fire may not be very helpful to God in his trying to get over the message, I remain in charge. I'm not going to be spectacular about this, but I'm going to tell you that I remain in charge. And when political things are going on, when Hazael comes to power in Syria, and when Jehu comes to power in northern Israel, I am behind it. I remain in charge. It's not going to be a merciful response from God either. 
Although Elijah's told there are 7,000 people who've not bowed the knee, God is going to come in judgment. He's going to use these other kings as judges against his people who've rejected the covenant. And what's interesting to me, therefore, is how this passage has been used to justify a kind of idolatry. Just as passages in Judges get used to show the warrior God or the wonder-working God, so that we get caught up into that model. And that goes on, it justifies the Crusades, it justifies the Jihad of Islam. Just as last century we were told that God was on our side in war. So this passage is wrenched out of its context to show the quiet God, the nice God who doesn't raise his voice, the peaceable sense of being still and gentle and nice and one-on-one away from the world, the nasty world in which war and conflict and action happen. But it's not what it says. Elijah has to get up, go all the way back north, and take the risk of going into an enemy camp and anointing a warrior general who is not the son of the reigning monarch. And the same in Israel, because God remains in charge. And if this passage means that we should avoid the idolatry that that hymn has come to represent for some, just as much as any other idolatry, what does it all mean in practice today? Well, the answer to idolatry is repentance. We're only 150 years or so on from Whittier, and it takes a long time for idolatry to die, especially if we appear to have reinforced it. If war has come along and made it stronger, maybe you need to repent of a God whom you've allowed to become too much the interior God, the God of your feelings, your sense, your closeness to him or otherwise. Maybe you try to use God as an escape from a world that is difficult or demanding, where conflict is all too apparent in your own life. All of that is understandable. But so was Baal worship. It was very understandable. And if your God is too much the quiet God who can never make a difference then you'll be someone looking to avoid the responsibility of acting in your own life. Because look what Elijah, who hears the still small voice, is given to do. He has to engage in a huge further effort to do something that will have been very demanding because it's going to bring more judgment. And what he does is in echo of a summons that shows God remains in charge. God does things. God remains sovereign. Has it it not struck you how little comment there is amongst Christians saying, what is God up to in the Gaza nightmare? How little we ask what is God up to in the horrors of Syria? How little we really push the question, what is God up to in this seemingly awful personal circumstance of mine? Because the appeal of that kind of hymn means we have bought into the idolatry that says our God is not in charge, so there's no point even asking that question. But Scripture says he is. I'm not pleading for a return to the Crusades, of course I'm not. Nor am I saying that the life of the inner person as we relate to God by his Spirit is irrelevant, of course I'm not. I'm saying look at Scripture. 
And we will discover, even from this passage, A, that God is in control of human affairs. B, that he commands effortful engagement in the world from his servants. And C, that the mysteries behind how things appear are revealed to us sometimes in subtle ways, sometimes in screamingly obvious ones. Each one of us, in any week, and certainly each one of us in this coming week, is going to face challenges in which it would be much easier to say, God exists, and I keep him in my heart, and we can have a conversation, but he's not really in charge. It would be much easier to flee to an interior sense of withdrawal, especially if we are suffering from an Elijah sense of, why me? And his in-chargeness can take into account long delays in which more bad things happened. And there was judgment even beyond that, just as in that timeline of the ancient Middle East. But this passage cannot be used to justify that fleeing to an interior God. It becomes an idolatry as bad as any that Ahab went in for. The challenge is to say quietly and confidently, without earthquake, wind, and fire, yes, my God, the God who was today in Israel, remains in charge. And then the challenge is to act as though he is. Even if that perhaps means facing some really big questions from which we should not run away about what all that will mean and how long it will all take. We're going to end things a little differently today. Um, I suspect that whatever we feel about Gaza and Syria, and whatever is in the news most today. For a lot of us, our challenges are whether God is in charge of the stresses and conflicts in our own lives. So it's not a bad moment just to show you a quick clip of some of the responses that have come to the headquarters of Who Cares. Some of them may, for all I know, have come from our own area. But, uh, Andy, are you ready to show... Yeah, would you show that clip, and we'll pray afterwards. Lord God, we live among a people who have rejected your covenant, who, with every change in our culture, seem to take another step away from the living God and towards idolatries of all kinds. And we come to you and say, Lord, have mercy. We are a people that stands upon your word, and your word tells us that you remain in charge. Every life that we have just read about on the screen is a life that is held in your hands no less than a life of Ahab and Jezebel and all those people who still had to suffer in Syria and Israel in their day. And we may be tempted 
to run away inside, to focus on a sense of God, on beauty and stillness and quietness, and to neglect the rage that should come to you and say, Lord, make it stop. We declare to you our trust that you remain in charge, for you have not changed. Since the days of Elijah and the days of Jesus when you raised him from the dead, the great in-charge moment of history, you have not changed. And we long that we would be a people who properly worship you with all that we are, with the quietness within and with the action without. With all of our obedience individually and collectively. And we give ourselves to your service so that as Elijah was commanded to do new things, we would be responsive to new things And to wherever you may call us to show that you are in charge and you do still care. Amen.